You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Please be seated. And let's turn to that passage, uh, Psalm 68. We're going to look at the whole psalm, and uh, what I'll do is the words will come up on the screen, we'll look at it in in sections as we go along. Um, If you are uh, new to Dundee, or if you're a Dundonian, um, maybe you won't understand this, but according to the newspaper this week, it turns out that Dundee is the unhappiest place in Scotland. Um, uh, You all look pretty miserable, actually. So those of you who are from Montrose, you're smiling, thinking, yeah, we, we knew that. Um, and those of you who are from the ferry, it's Dundee. You understand? It's not the ferry. You're part of Dundee. You're a suburb of Dundee. And you're all miserable, according to the paper. I mean, I honestly don't know how they work these things out. I, uh, how do we define happiness? As I walked here this morning, and through the center of town, and then up the Perth Road, uh, I know that there are pubs that have happy hours, and I see the effects of that, the broken glass and the vomit still on the pavements. How's that? Happiness. What is happiness? You know, is it, do you sing the Pharrell song and and, and dance around, and that's that's happiness? Well, we're going to look at what real happiness is, what real joy is through this psalm, which is unusual because a psalm Uh, I pretty well suspect that we're probably the only church in Dundee that's singing about God's wrath melting things away uh, this morning. How does that work? Well, as I say, we'll look at this psalm, and I hope that we'll see. John Flavel says this about uh, communion with God, about it being the supreme happiness. This joy of the Holy Spirit is a spiritual cheerfulness streaming through the soul of a believer upon the Spirit's testimony, which clears his interest in Christ and glory. No sooner doth the Spirit shed forth the love of God into the believer's heart, but it streams and overflows with joy. When the sun streams in that window, it's not great for seeing the screen. When God's Spirit brings the glory of the gospel to us, then even in the midst of the most adverse circumstances, there is a most profound joy that un- until you've tasted that, you don't really know what it is. And when you have tasted it, you never want anything else as much. So that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to do it through this psalm, which has been called the most difficult psalm in the Bible. And if I'm being honest, when I sat down this week and started going through it, I had my head in my hands thinking, how am I going to do this? You know, it, it's, there's bits and pieces here and there, but it's, it is very difficult. For example, in terms of translation, it's very difficult. In terms of cultural understandings, there's lots of images we don't get. I mean, what does it mean to be lying down among the pots? Or the rebellious living in a sun-scorched land? I was going to say we, we don't know what that means. Uh, or the wings of my dove are sheathed with silver. That sounds the kind of crazy card that some contemporary artist would have on their show, you know, wings of my dove are sheathed with silver. Mount Bashan, the hairy crowns, feet bathing in blood, or my favorite of all, 
May the beast among the reeds bring bars of silver. Put that on a Hallmark card and uh, for a birthday greeting or something. Uh, May the beast bring you bars of silver. So what is it? What is it? all mean. It's a great psalm, by the way. It was the favorite psalm of the Covenanters and Cromwell's Ironside as they went to battle. They, they, they sang it. So there are maybe lots of questions from what we'll look at, but I hope that you'll see. As, as I looked at this, I just thought it's just, I just thought it was absolutely brilliant. So let's begin. May God arise. May his enemies be scattered. May his foes flee before him. As smoke is blown away by the wind, may you blow them away. As wax melts before the fire, may the wicked perish before God. But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. This song was probably written when David brought the ark from the house of Obed-Eben to the city of David with rejoicing. You read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 12. And whenever the ark was moved, this was said because it's Numbers 10.35. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. And what this section is saying, and I'm going to go through each section and take out one lesson for us uh, for each of these sections. What this section is saying is simply this. God is on the march and the enemy is not what you think. The enemy is not as solid as you think. You're faced with enormous enemies. We are faced with tremendous opposition. And it may be that the enemies you face are not maybe direct persecution or abuse, but they can be things like your doubts and fears. They can be the enemy of death. They can be so many different things that are going on in your life. And they appear to be rock solid and overwhelming. But the psalmist says, there's smoke. There's smoke. And when you blow, when God breathes on them, they disappear. Calvin says this, we consider it utterly incredible that such a formidable array of opposition should be made to disappear in a moment. But the Spirit takes this method of chiding the fearfulness of our carnal minds and teaching us that there is no such strength in our enemies as we suppose that we allow the smoke of them to blind our eyes and the solid mass of resistance which they present to deceive us into a forgetfulness of the truth that mountains flow down at the presence of the Lord. You need to understand and grasp this. Whatever enemy you are facing today, whether personally, internally, externally, spiritually, physically, emotionally, however overwhelming that enemy may feel, compared with God, it's nothing. It's smoke. He can deal with it. And that we, we, we need to hold on to, especially when we think we're going to be overwhelmed. And who is this God? He goes on, sing to God, sing praise to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord and rejoice before him. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. There's a problem of translation here. It's either he rides on the clouds or in the desert. doesn't matter. It's the same thing. It's two most difficult situations, and God is sovereign in both circumstances. 
And what I love about this is this power of God, which is almighty and, uh, and beyond our understanding, which blows away our enemies. What's it used for? Protecting the helpless, helping the lonely, being a defender of widows, a father to the fatherless. There's an extraordinary lie that the devil has got into the church whereby some people think we can't believe in how can you how can you sing of a god of power who blows away his enemies that's terrible we want the compassion of jesus and you know why that's an extraordinary lie it's because it's that very power which he uses to blow away his enemies which he uses to help the helpless sometimes you will get preachers who will stand up or ministers who will stand up and go god is with us in our helplessness because he himself is helpless I'm sorry, but that's helpless. That's useless. That's not the God of the Bible. Here's this extraordinary thing. The God of the Bible is almighty and powerful, and he uses that power to help the helpless. I didn't know. Just the stuff that we're singing this morning and uh, reading and what we're looking at. Isn't it wonderful that God, how, how much it's connected with Uh, the death of Donald. God is a defender of widows. He's a father to the fatherless. That's what I want to hear when I'm mourning. I don't want to hear that, well, God empathizes with you in your pain, but there's nothing that he can do about it. He can. He deals with the rebels as well. Look at that extraordinary uh, phrase as well. The rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. And what he means by that is the, re- the rebellious dwell in a dry land. And he- here, the image is very much one that we apply spiritually. What do we mean by that? We mean that sometimes there are those of us who are struggling because of the opposition, because of the things that are happening, because of the heaviness, because we've had a rough week or a rough month or a rough year, or we think we've had a rough life. And God comes to us and he comforts us. But there are other people who turn away from God and who rely on their wealth and rely on their strength and rely on their position and rely on their circumstances and rely on their gifts. And then they wonder why they feel spiritually dry. The reason we are spiritually dry is because we are rebels. And God challenges us on that. Then, that's the king's, if you like, the king's praise. Second point is the king's progress from verse 7. When you went out before your people, O God, when you marched through the wasteland, the earth shook, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. You gave abundant showers, O God. You refreshed your weary inheritance. Your people settled in it. And from your bounty, O God, you provided for the poor the ark moves on. And here, this passage is describing the last stage before it comes home. Calvin says, the psalmist now proceeds to show that the divine goodness is principally displayed in the church, which God has settled as the great theater where his fatherly love may be manifested. I love that image of the church. The church is the great theater where the love of God, God's fatherly love, may be shown and manifested to us. 
How sad that we live in a culture where for so many people in the church, that is not their experience, that is not their observation. And how wonderful it is when God is able to show his love. So we're talking about um, being a defender of the widows. How does that manifest itself? It manifests in his church. It manifests through God's people seeking to support and help and encourage and sustain. It manifests itself, by the way, as well through us remembering what God has done in the past. The Exodus march is referred to here, the Theophany at Sinai, where God appeared at Sinai, the mighty rain. And we probably wouldn't get that. If you know your Old Testament history really well, the Israelites were under grave trouble and a man called Sisera was about to destroy them and God sent a mighty rain. And that's what this is referring to. And then he, he does this beautiful picture, this mighty rain and then this gentle rain that comes the, the earthquake, if you like, and then the gentle rain that causes the crops to grow. We remember that. And as God's people, as we come together and we struggle in so many things, we remember what Jesus has done. We sit at the Lord's table. We remember his death until he comes. We remember the Sermon on the Mount, the Garden of Gethsemane, the day of Pentecost, the gentle rain of the Spirit. And we remember that God refreshed his people. God gave abundant showers. God helped the poor, the one whom the skies recognized, the one who danced on the clouds is the one who helps the poor. And we come to God as those who are poor in many ways. We may be um, relatively well off materially. We may not, but we come in poverty because any one of us who have got even the tiniest glimpse into our own hearts knows the depth and the poverty that is there. And we're astounded, isn't it? It's incredible how much we rely on ourselves and the hubris we have within ourselves, how great we think about ourselves, and God comes and he breathes, and even maybe gently he breathes, and we see that we have nothing, that we are empty. But God, we are dry we're rebels, but God gives abundant showers and refreshes his people. Maybe you and I need to be more fervent in prayer that God would refresh his people in this land. Do you know what it's like, don't you? You come to church sometimes, and maybe you're here this morning, and I hope this happens to you. I really do. I pray it for myself. I pray it every time we meet together. I just pray, Lord, refresh my spirit. Because sometimes I come and I'm full of the joys and blessing and so on. And often I will come and there's a dryness. You say, Lord, take away the dryness. Lord, refresh. And God does that. He helps the poor. He gives abundant showers. And I hope that you will go from this place um, refreshed. It was great on Thursday or Wednesday when we did the first newbies group. I was really tired and so on, and a lot of stuff going on. And it was just so refreshing to have that group of a dozen people, just, just people who love the Lord and who want to find out more. And that's what God does for us. And then 
The Lord announced the word, and great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings and armies flee in haste. In the camps, men divide the plunder. Even while you, sh- you sleep among the campfires, the wings of my dove are sheathed with silver, its feathers with shining gold. When the Lord, when the Almighty scattered the kings in the land, it was like snow fallen on Zalman. All right, explain that one. <laughs> um, and by the way, the translation, the uh, among the campfires, that's the one where you get amongst the pots and so on. And there are so many different translations because it's, apparently it's very difficult. And those of you who were brought up on the metrical King James Version Psalms, uh, I don't know why as a young person this phrase struck me from that. Uh, the women that did stay at home did distribute the prey. And I was thinking, what's that about? Is that saying that All of you women who are working, that's really bad. You should be at home and you should be at home. And while your husband goes out and kills a few things and then brings back the prey or, you know, works and then you've got to look after all, you know, that's not what it's saying at all. Let me just explain it. This is referring to something called Deborah's song. When Deborah in leading Israel as a judge, a woman as a judge, uh, engaged basically in a battle which was won. And it's about the spoils of war. Judges 5.30 says this, are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A girl or two for each man, colorful garments as plunder for Sisera, colorful garments embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck, all this as plunder. This was Sisera's wife singing a song saying, my man's gone out and he's basically destroying the Israelites, he's destroying God's people and he's going to bring back all this plunder. And Psalm 68 says, no, that's not how it happened and that's not what happened. And what he's simply saying is that here, the women were celebrating the fact that the battle was actually won. And the image here is of uh, women who are basically showing off in their new finery, their new clothing, uh, because of a victory that has been won. And if I put this just in Christian terms, very simply, the women proclaimed the word. That's interesting, isn't it? The women proclaimed the word. They celebrated. We need women to proclaim the good news. It's not just uh, somebody like me who stands up and preaches in a pulpit. We need people to tell the good news. I love um, verse 13 where it says about the sheep folds, you could read it, or lay among the pots is uh, how the AV puts it. But the, the image there, I think, is one of they were amongst the filth and then the dove comes and the church rises out of that filth. And I think the whole point in this section is that whether exhausted from the fight or resting at home, the work is Christ's and he will prevail. All the time we are conscious that the work belongs to Jesus Christ. And he goes on. The mountains of Bashan are majestic mountains. Rugged are the mountains of Bashan. Why gaze in envy, O rugged mountains, at the mountain where God chooses to reign, where the Lord himself will dwell forever? The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. Mount Bashan was majestic. Massive mountain. Like Everest. Uh, we went to see the film Everest, and it's just... Uh, let's put it this way, I'm not going climbing Everest. We went up in the Sidlaws yesterday, and that's as much as I'm doing. You know, I've, I've not even done Ben Nevis, 
But Everest, I don't get. And you see people, they were so determined to do it. Um, it's not spoiling the plot to say that some of them died. You think, well, why? Well, because it's there. Yeah, there's lots of things that are there. Uh, I'm not going to climb them or jump off them just because they're there. So why? And do you know what I think part of it is? Part of it is, this is the biggest thing in the world, and I'm going to conquer it. And isn't it amazing what humans can do? And there's a little bit of that in this. The mountain, Mount Bashan, the most majestic. If God is going to choose a people and base a city around a mountain, then he's going to choose Mount Bashan. And instead, he chooses the hill of Zion. He chooses what was a foothill, really. He chooses the Sidlaws instead of Everest. That's what it's saying. A much smaller mountain where God chooses to dwell. And God does that. He chooses David, the shepherd boy. The choice of the tribe of Benjamin. And let's be frank, the choice of you and me. Not many wise, not many noble. Why did God choose you? Was it for your fantastic abilities? Was it for your wealth? Was it for your stunning good looks? Was it for your sound moral character? Was it because of your family? No, God just did. And that's what God is telling his people. It's his sanctuary, the place of revelation. The place where God has chosen to be found. Hebrews 12, 18. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm. You've not come to that mountain, he says, but he goes on. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. The chariots of gods are tens of thousands, thousands of thousands. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirit of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You haven't come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Jesus, and you've come to his church. And it's just a wonderful thing, a wonderful, wonderful thing. Verse 18 When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord God, might dwell there. I love the King James Version translation of that. You took captivity captive. For me, similar to the song we sang at the beginning, See What a Morning. Death is dead. Captivity is made captive. What does it mean? It means that the things that the prisoners have been imprisoned by, are themselves imprisoned and chained up. It means that God takes our fears and our poverty and our sickness and our enemies and he releases us from them. That doesn't mean to say you'll never be sick and it doesn't mean to say that you'll never have enemies and it doesn't mean to say that you will not die. But it does mean this, that death has lost its sting and it does mean even the very things that you dread, they are captive to the king. Paul says this about the church. Ephesians 4, each one of you, but to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. And it then goes on to talk about the gifts that God has given to his church in terms of pastors and uh, evangelists and teachers to prepare God's people for works of of faith. Go and read the whole passage because it talks about how the church works as the body of Christ, as each part does its work, uh, joined and held together by every supporting ligament. Built itself, builds itself up in love. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is. 
That's why it hurts so much when one part of it goes wrong. That's why it hurts so much when a brother or sister falls away from the Lord. And that's why you rejoice so much when you see people growing and developing in grace and in faith. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Surely God will crush the heads of his enemies, the hairy crowns of those who go on in their sins. The Lord says, I will bring them from Bashan. I will bring them from the depths of the sea, so that you may plunge your feet in the blood of your foes while the tongues of your dogs have their share. What does that mean? The key word here is daily. Daily victors or burdens. Uh, One translation has it the kind of, he he daily loads us with his benefits. Another has, he daily um, carries our burdens because it's so similar but I think it's deliberate, it's intentional in that way. The two things are the same. What greater benefit could there be than God carries your burdens? Hmm? What greater benefit could there be than that? I remember a song. I've never, I haven't come across it anywhere. And I look for it and I just, for some reason, the words have just been emblazoned on my mind. And as soon as I start it, it it's, I'm not going to sing it to you, but I'll quote it. Is your burden heavy as you bear it on your own? Does the road you travel harbor dangers yet unknown? Are you growing weary in the struggle of it all? Jesus will help you when on his name you call. He's always there, hearing every prayer, faithful and true. Always by your side, in his love you hide, all the day through. So when you get discouraged, just remember what to do. You reach out to Jesus. He's reaching out to you. Isaiah 63 says, in all their distress, he too was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. God is with his people. And you know, when you take communion this morning and you are a Christian and you are heavily burdened, can I suggest this? That even in your mind, you are thinking, cast all your burdens on him because he cares for you. And you take what he gives, and you give him what you don't want, that burden. And that bit at the end about God crushing his enemies, it's not bloodlust. It is gory. It's gory. Defeating enemies is, it's not a cakewalk. The judgment here is for those who go on in their sins, not for those who return to him. Verse 24, your procession has come into view, O God, the procession of my God and King into the sanctuary. Here's where the ark is arriving at the temple. In front are the singers, after them the musicians. With them are the maidens playing tambourines. Praise God in the great congregation. Praise the Lord in the assembly of Israel. There is the little tribe of Benjamin leading them. There the great throng of Judah's princes. And there the princes of Zebulun and of Naphtali. You... uh, can read about this in much more detail in Chronicles. Just a couple of things to note. The young woman playing the tambourines records Miriam, Moses' sister, or Jephthah's daughter. And I think the whole image here is of rejoicing and celebration in the presence of God. Do you know how important when, we, when the guys are playing uh, instruments or whatever, and, and we are singing God's praise, do you know that what we are doing? We're doing what God's people have done through all the ages and what God's people are supposed to do. We are praising the God of the Bible. We are praising Jesus Christ. 
And that's why we give it our best. And that's why we should never regard it as something preliminary. Our singing is worship in the presence of God. Please think about what you sing and think about who you sing it to and think about who you sing it for and think about who you sing it with. It's a great celebration. Summon your power, O God. Show us your strength, O God, as you have done before. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring you gifts. Rebuke the beast among the reeds, the herd of bulls among the calves of the nations. Humbled may it bring bars of silver. Scatter the nations who delight in war. Envoys will come from Egypt. Cush will submit herself to God. The nations will come. The beast among the reeds is a nickname for the hippo or the crocodile. And that's the symbol of Israel's ancient enemy at this point, Egypt, the traditional oppressor. Cush was considered to be a remote nation seeking God. And all that is being said here is simply God sees and God hates war. God sees and God hates this oppressive, violent, evil. As in the days of Noah, he looked and saw if there's any who seek after God. No, not one. And so they call out for God to work so that even the most violent of nations, that people will turn. I read uh, some extraordinary testimonies this week (coughs) of people who have been serving in ISIS who have become Christians. It really is quite amazing. And then you think about the Apostle Paul out to kill Christians before he was converted. We pray that that will happen. And then finally, the last part. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praise to the Lord. (coughs) To him who rides the ancient skies above, who thunders with mighty voice. Proclaim the power of God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. You are awesome, O God, in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. What the psalmist does here is he takes the God of Israel, and he expands that God to the God of the whole world, the whole universe. And yet that God is still personal. There's a union of the immense power and the intense care, a union that we see in the death and resurrection of Christ. In fact, this whole psalm is from Egypt to Zion, if you like, is a picture of the saving work of Christ. Christ came in humility. Christ came to the filth. Christ died the most horrendous and evil death. See Mary weeping. We sang that. See Mary weeping. Why is she weeping? Because the cross is ugly. Why is she weeping? Because there's death. Why is she weeping? Because the most beautiful and wonderful person she had ever known had died. But, but, the power, the power. Christ was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The dove has risen from the pots. Acts 2.33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And this whole psalm actually looks forward to the return of Christ, to the King coming in his glory, in his awesomeness, in his might, in his holiness, in his gracious indwelling, his available power. And that's what all this is about. It's not a psalm about pots and mountains and um, 
bathing people in blood and so on. It's a song about God's provision for the poor. It's a song about God's provision for those who are overwhelmed. And that provision, that happiness, if you like, is found in Christ. Communion. Communion. There is... There, there's a, just a phenomenal sermon by Favelli. I mean, it goes on at 35 pages, so it must have taken a long time to preach. But it's a phenomenal sermon on what communion with God really is. And I think being in Christ, as Paul describes it, is something that we can reflect upon and think about and meditate upon for the rest of our days, and we probably won't get it. But we know it when it happens. Let me just quote two things from Favel. This is sure. The more communion any man hath with God on earth, the freer he lives from the power of his corruptions. Are you struggling with indwelling sin? Struggling with all the thoughts, all the fears, all the doubts? What is the solution? The solution is not to say, right, I'm going to deal with this particular sin, or I'm going to give this up, or I'm going to do this. You know what the solution is? The more you see of Jesus, the more you know of Jesus, the less room you have for sin in your life. The more you see the beauty of Christ, the less you will, you will go to the ugly cesspits of this world. Your solution is to turn to Christ. Words, says Flavel, gestures, ceremonies of religion will never fill the soul, but communion with God is substantial nourishment. Or again, to quote Calvin, we have no reason to repine or to moan at our lot so long as we have union with God, the only and sufficient source of our happiness. If Dundee is the most miserable city in Scotland, it's because people don't know Christ. I don't think that's the standard that our surveyors are using. They're talking about how much money people have. They're talking about various factors in terms of external security. They're talking about physical health. But what we're talking about here is something that goes far, far, far deeper. It's not that for the Christian physical health is unimportant or that money doesn't matter or that food or clothing doesn't matter. It does. But it is that for the Christian, our ultimate blessedness our ultimate happiness cannot be found in these things. Our happiness is found in what's up there. You are awesome, O God, in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. We often turn away from trouble and sickness, and we find ourselves, when faced with people who are facing bereavement or something we find ourselves uttering cliches and almost not wanting to be in their presence. There's an embarrassment sometimes because we find it difficult to face up to the pain and the suffering that is really there in the world. And we think, I couldn't handle that. I couldn't cope with that. Let me tell you this. No matter what is ahead of you in this week that lies ahead, in the months that lie ahead, and in the years that lie ahead, you belong to Jesus then you get this. Strength, the Lord gives strength and power to his people. And it's not the power that some Christians like to boast of. I can zap somebody. I can heal somebody. I can do this. You know what the power is? 
The power is to keep your head above water. The power is to rejoice in the midst of suffering. The power is to know the peace of the Lord in the midst of the greatest storm you've ever had or will ever have in your life. We get that through communion with God. May God grant it to all of us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.